Please note, this episode contains discussions on the topic of sexual abuse. Listener discretion is advised. When the church's sex abuse scandals reemerged in 2018, Jonathan Reyes was working for the bishops. I worked with the USCCB, United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, and was engaged in uh, any number of dimensions of their work, but in part, some of the response to the sexual abuse crisis. A former history professor, I asked him how he processed the revelations of that summer. So as a historian, one of the things I did when this broke for the second time, and I was with the USCCB, is I looked at historical moments of reform and said, when did reform work and what made it work? So I spent a lot of time in the 16th century, for example. And one of the things that came out to me, uh, many things did, but one thing that stuck out to me is the most powerful reformers in the history of the church in times of tremendous clerical abuse and laxity among the lay faithful as well, is that power in the church is exercised through holiness, ultimately. If you want to know who the church follows and who the church believes, you look at, frankly, the saints. And they may be bishops or they may not be bishops. They may be priests or they may not be priests. When Reyes refers to the 16th century, he's talking about the time of the Protestant Reformation. The Reformation led to many Catholics leaving the church to join new churches founded by reformers, like Martin Luther and John Calvin. The Reformation was a time of great crisis for the Catholic Church and arose out of real corruption, especially among the clergy. Sound familiar? But it also led to a counter-reformation in the Council of Trent, which would set a path of renewal and growth for the church for almost 500 years. And it was also a time that saw the rise of lay people, priests, and bishops, who later became great saints in the church. The saints of the 16th centuries, St. Thomas More, Charles Borromeo, Catherine of Genoa, these are laity, these are priests, these are bishops. What makes them potent and powerful, and when you look back on the 16th century and say, where did reform come from? You point to these people. And what gave them their power was, frankly, sanctity, was holiness. And this seems so trite to us. We think, oh, don't give me the holiness thing. Let's just get down to brass tacks and fix. And I'm all for that. I agree 100%. I worked on some of the things that were produced as responses to this crisis, structural changes, processes and protocols and all that. Those are essential, but they're not sufficient. Real power in the church comes not from position, it comes from holiness. Think of how many priests and bishops there have been who's, and popes whose names we don't remember. But we remember Thomas More, we remember Catherine of Siena, we remember Catherine of Genoa, we remember St. Philip Neri. While the participation of the laity in the church looks very different from the 16th century, the mission of the laity, their call to holiness and to evangelize the world, remains the same. Welcome to Crisis, Clergy Abuse in the Catholic Church. I'm Cardinal Lozoya. More than 50 years ago, the Second Vatican Council highlighted the role of the laity in the Catholic Church in a document called Lumen Gentium. The bishops noted that all members, clergy and laity alike, contribute toward the renewal and building up of the Church. The term coined by Benedict XVI to articulate this is co-responsibility. 
He said the laity must no longer be viewed as mere collaborators of the clergy, but truly recognized as co-responsible for the church's being and action. That distinction between collaboration and co-responsibility is important. It's one thing to be on the same team as the clergy, helping them advance the mission of the church. It's another thing altogether to be personally responsible for the church's mission. In this episode, we'll explore the idea of shared responsibility between laity and clergy, what it looks like in practice, and how co-responsibility is a key factor in successfully addressing the sex abuse crisis. And so the church uses this term co-responsibility, and it says basically every Christian is responsible for the whole mission of the church. That's the baptized Christian. That's all of us. And that mission, quite clearly, is to bring everyone in the world into a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's the redemptive work of Jesus, and we all share that mission. According to Reyes, a lot of Catholics have the idea that the church is the hierarchy. I think a lot of us grew up with this, which is we've thought of there's us and there's then the clergy. Uh, sometimes when we talk about the church, we'll say something like, well, I agree with the church or I disagree with the church. But what we're basically saying is the church is over there. It's the hierarchy and it's not us. And what Vatican II sought to emphasize, correct, realign in that is the notion that, no, the church is actually under two images, the body of Christ and the people of God. It is us. And as baptized members of the church, we are just as responsible for the mission of the church as the Pope. We have different roles, but we share responsibility. What we've missed in Vatican II or haven't quite gotten about laity is in fact making the space for co-responsibility. So what does that look like? Uh, there are all kinds of competencies and excellences that laity bring to a situation that need to be exercised well for the good governance of the church, even a local parish. A model that represents co-responsibility is going to invite and give real governing influence to expert laity in areas where laity are expert. But this isn't to be confused, just to be clear, with the role of the ordained clergy, whose primary responsibility is what, to use an old expression, the cure of souls. They're responsible for the preaching of the gospel uh, in its fidelity in the, in the parish. Uh, so the sacramental life, the Eucharist, uh, the cure of souls, this is penance. And that's their space. Um, and so if we're co-responsible in the full mission of the church, our various gifts are brought to bear on an institution that has a breadth, a reach. It's doing all kinds of things. It has financial questions. It has all kinds of human resource questions. It has the spiritual questions. And we're sharing in that together. And I think pastoral councils in that were a step in that direction. And I think there's, there's room there. I think there's room for the church to think structurally even further about ways to make that cooperation happen. Teaching clergy and laity at the parish or diocesan levels how to work together effectively as co-responsible partners in the church is the work of Dan Salucci. My name is Dan Salucci, and I have the privilege of serving as the CEO of Catholic Leadership Institute, which is in a national apostolate that's based in the Philadelphia area and provides 
leadership training and support to all leaders in the Catholic Church, particularly our bishops and our priests and lay diocesan and parish leaders. Catholic businessman Tim Flanagan founded the Catholic Leadership Institute in 1991. He recognized that while leadership training was offered in businesses, it wasn't offered in the church. So he changed that, and Salucci was one of the first young adults to benefit from the training. Now he's the CEO. For about 10 years, all we did was provide leadership training to priests um, in all the different basics. So how to do a strategic plan, how to recruit volunteers, how to uh, do messaging and communications effectively in a parish setting, uh, how to sustain their own motivation, time management, all those key leadership behaviors. Salucci told me that one obstacle to laity fully embracing their shared responsibility is the idea that the church exists primarily to give them something. I think the, the consumer mindset is one that I think we've kind of fed into as a church overall. I mean, I'm saying clergy as well, in, in the sense that um, I come to the parish or I come to the church to receive things. So you, you give me my sacraments, you give me uh, good music, you give me good preaching, you give me this, and that's what I deserve. Um, and and I, I think to a point, uh, there's there's truth in that, right? I mean, we are we are uh, uh, coming to church for the sacraments. We are we do want to hear effective preaching like that. Those aren't unrealistic expectations. I think the problem is when we get uh, too far afield in in the expectations or the entitlement mindset. Uh, as if you were going to a, um, you know, a concert or something like that, then I think we lose, again, I think we fall into a, a rights-based mentality, right? I have a right to this. Yes, you do. We have rights uh, in canon law because of our baptism. But but like any right, um, uh, you know, the right to vote, the right uh, to, to, to bear arms, any of those rights that we had tried in our constitution, right? There comes a responsibility. And so I think, I think as Christians, as Catholic Christians, we should start with a responsibility mindset, uh, and, our, and our bishops and priests should do the same. When lay Catholics don't carry their share of the burden, that puts a lot of pressure on priests to do it all themselves. What has happened is, um, over the years, we've kind of moved and, and really concentrated our faith in this man, as opposed to the Lord, in, in some cases, and, and have, have actually kind of abdicated our responsibility, our co-responsibility. Um, and so then that's a whole lot of pressure on him, right? And he's human and he's gonna make a whole bunch of mistakes. And so I think when I think about or have witnessed a parish that is really co-responsible, it's not a, dim a diminishment of father's role. It's really a, a, um, an increase in the lay faithful's role in, in ownership. And so ownership is certainly helping in decision-making, helping in planning and looking to the future. Ownership is also, though, having hard conversations with each other as lay people. You know, we, we sometimes when we go in to consult with a parish, the challenge is not necessarily father. Um, the challenge is, you know, two or three people who have kind of like a death grip or, or <laughs> have a very territorial mindset around the parish. That, that becomes the problem. Salucci so also mentioned that co-responsibility is more than just plugging people into an organizational chart. A lot of times people want to make it about structure. Uh, and, and this is, I think, a kind of a human uh, dynamic. We want to kind of just fix the org chart and everything else is going to work out okay. My experience is it's less about the org chart. It's more about the interactions of the people on the org chart uh, in, in organizational dynamics that really make or break it. And so it's having those honest conversations. It's, it's having... 
uh, the ability to say to Father, hey, Father, I think, I think you're getting this one wrong, and I think we need to revisit that conversation. The lack of feedback, really good feedback, that we are providing to our priests, I think is a, a huge systemic issue, one of the biggest in the church. And I think that you see that uh, certainly at the parish level, I think you see it at the diocesan level, but oftentimes we are not, uh, as laity, I think not comfortable, not equipped, and not delivering feedback in a way that's effective, uh, in a way that we would do for people who work for us in our businesses or students that we teach, right? We would, we would, uh, uh, approach those differently, more pastorally, if you will. And in the church, we, we don't do that. We, we tend to, I think, have two speeds of feedback, right? We have no feedback uh, or we have angry letters. <laughs> and the reality is like, that's the worst way to help these guys who I, who in my experience really do want help. For Salucci, however, the most important job of the laity is not at the parish. I think the biggest role we play as laity is, is actually outside of the parish grounds bringing people to the parish, bringing people to the Lord in our workplace, in our family, for sure. I think, you know, I think we've we've missed a generation in helping parents understand kind of their critical role as lay leaders in their family and that that the family is is the basic building block of of the church. So the the priest's job is to nurture us, to feed us the sacraments, to to govern our spiritual lives, to help us become holy so that we can go out into the world and transform it. Deborah Savage is a theologian and a philosopher. She teaches seminarians at the St. Paul Seminary School of Divinity in Minnesota. The job of the lady is to transform the temporal order. That's our job. And it's pretty clear that not a lot of people got that memo. One aspect of the laity that might seem too obvious to mention is that it's composed of both men and women. The clergy, however, is male only. This means there's a distinct contribution to the church that only the laity can make. I asked Savage how the complementarity of the sexes shapes the way the laity and clergy work together. Drawing on the writings of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, Savage says there's a tendency to favor the masculine, not only in the church, but in Western culture in general. He talks about the fact that there's an emphasis on the Western mentality of activism, that you, you matter if you do stuff. And so the emphasis on action, on action and activism that characterizes the West has led to the conclusion on the part of the culture and in some ways in the church that only the masculine principle counts because this is sort of the masculine principle, meaning the active principle. And he, he says this is a big problem because uh, we have created a church in which, in a certain way, only the masculine principle counts. And we've forgotten what he refers to, and others have, the Marian dimension. And John Paul II and others, Hansers von Balthasar and Cardinal Ratzinger, have all pointed out eloquently and profoundly that the Marian principle is primary. Because uh, first of all, Mary received the word. She's the first apostle, she's the first disciple. She's ahead of all of us, including Peter, on the road back to Christ. They say there's two dimensions, two principles that govern the church, the apostolic Petrine and the Marian. The apostolic Petrine is reflected in the visible structure of the church, uh, 
We have the hierarchy, which we need, and all of that. Uh, but without the inner life of the church, the Marian principle, the body has no life. And so uh, it's, it's really essential for everyone to understand this. That John Paul II says in Mulieris Dignitatum something quite amazing. He points out, as we all know but don't really appreciate, at the center of the salvific drama of history is a woman. If Mary had not said yes, no doubt God would have figured something else out. But she did. And she said that she did, she accepted her fiat in freedom. This is where the complementarity of, of men and women and the priesthood and the laity begins, right? Is, is really, in a way, right, right there. The apostolic Petrine and the Marian principles must work together. Just as the lady offers an irreplaceable contribution to the mission of the church, the lady also has an essential role in addressing the sex abuse crisis. The clergy alone simply can't fix what has been broken. In 2018, Jonathan Reyes had a front row seat to the bishop's response to the abuse crisis. I asked him how the laity helped shape that response. Yeah, I think um, maybe uh, I had a special seat on this, but I received from organizations, individuals all over the country. Uh, I was uh, reading the correspondence that came to the, just to the USCCB, for example, and the amount of lay input that I can say was translated into suggestions, recommendations, refinements was significant, it was massive. So we had expert lawyers, expert social workers, expert business people, HR directors saying, here are ways you can tighten the ship. Here are things you can put in place. Here are excellences that don't exist in the current structure that should be there. Here are the kinds of investigators that you need. At the local level, the laity provide expertise through diocesan review boards. They assist bishops in reviewing allegations against clergy and advise them regarding safe environment policies. They serve as an added level of transparency, but they don't have governing authority over the bishops. They can't remove him or force him to follow their advice. I asked Francesco Cesareo about this tension between the review board and the bishop's authority. Cesareo is the former chair of the National Review Board, which advises the bishop's conference on these issues. Why is the role of the lady uh, consultative as an advisor, but there's kind of this line... I think part of it uh, stems from this concern that in having the laity uh, assume too much of a role in these processes uh, weakens the, the place, the role, the authority, if you will, of the bishop. And so therefore the autonomy of the bishop uh, is compromised. And the bishop is now uh, beholden to this lay group uh, when, from an ecclesiological perspective, he is only beholden to the Holy Father and, and, and to Rome. And I think that the problem with that thinking is that it places the institutional structure above the more important question, and that is 
the safety of the child or the vulnerable adult or the, the minor or the individual who is subordinate to the bishop. I think it's also been, you know, a preservation of um, a certain type of understanding of Episcopal authority and uh, the place of the bishop uh, and uh, the importance of canon law um, and a, a strict interpretation of, of canon law, almost a fundamentalist interpretation of canon law. Canon law is shaped by theology, and there are deep theological reasons that a bishop has sole governance in his diocese. But the experience of the crisis has shown that a narrow focus on protecting the authority of the bishop hasn't made enough room for the laity. What bishops need to recognize is that there is expertise needed to deal with this issue and with aspects of this issue that they themselves don't have. It's taking the gifts and the talents that the laity have and using it for the love of the church that they have to assist them. Uh, and until they can accept that co-responsibility of the laity, it's going to be very, very difficult to have a, a real dramatic shift and change in the way in which... Uh, particularly in, in dealing with bishops uh, going forward. One idea that came out of my interviews for this podcast is the possibility of wider consultation with the lady about who has chosen to become a bishop. The process of choosing bishops needs to be reformed. Uh, too often today, it's bishops choosing bishops. George Weigel, Catholic author and biographer of John Paul II. Not always. Sometimes lay people are consulted. I have been on rare occasions myself. That consultation needs to be seriously expanded. Uh, bishops choosing bishops is a prescription for a clerical caste system at best. Bishops and fellow clergy often do not see things in a priest that lay people see. And the church could have saved itself an awful lot of grief and an awful lot of scandal had competent lay people been part of the conversation about whether Father X is capable of exercising the office of bishop in the church in the 21st uh, century. For example, a sexual predator like Theodore McCarrick doesn't rise to the ranks of cardinal without other bishops vouching for him. I asked Weigel what more involvement from the laity in choosing bishops would look like. I'm not sure exactly what it would look like operationally, Karna. It, it can't be the Anglican or Lutheran model of electing bishops. That, that's not a solution uh, here. But uh, when a man is being considered for the episcopate, Letters are sent out to various people asking them to fill out a questionnaire on this guy. I think the people receiving that letter and that questionnaire should not be exclusively clergy. I think if, a man, if, a, if the pastor of a parish is being considered for the episcopate, competent lay people with an ability 
to keep a confidence should be consulted. Weigel also suggests that the criteria considered for appointing a bishop needs to change. Uh, The single most important thing we want to know about anybody being considered for the office of bishop today is, is this guy a radically converted disciple of Jesus Christ who knows how to be a herald of the gospel and has demonstrated that as a pastor, as a seminary professor, as a university chaplain, has this person brought other people to Christ? And you're going to get interesting responses from that from, from lay people. This reminds me of a conversation I had with a priest once. There was an issue we thought should be brought to the bishop's attention. I assumed the message would be better received coming from the priest, but he told me that I should be the one to tell the bishop because, according to him, the bishop is more likely to listen to a layperson. That made me think, maybe we're listened to more than we realize. I think laity, particularly in a country like the United States, actually do have a voice. Jonathan Reyes. People pay attention to what laity say. I think a lot of the forward motion on the sex abuse crisis in general has come out of just lay voices saying, that's not good enough. We want more, or we expect more, and we expect better. So we continue to raise our voices. We continue to make known the things that we expect. This is one of the most common ways that lay people can affect change in the church. Making the issue prominent, not letting it drop, continuing to press on it, I think is one of the great gifts. And by the way, this is one thing I'd say to laity, to us, let's keep our voice going. Uh, Perseverance is key in this because we're in a long, this is a long run. We've made some real advances. There's more room to go. We don't want to drop the issue. It's, it's, It's okay for us to continue to insist on this. But our voice, our expertise, and then volunteering in places we can. Uh, Also in victims ministry. I mean, there's just some potent, beautiful, uh, moving testimony of people making their contribution and just accompanying victims, which is probably where the church's response should start. It starts with that healing. And laity have a role there. First of all, it's not to pull any punches. Deborah Savage. Let's picture being in a meeting with priests and bishops, and the whole thing is coming up. And let's say there's men and women, laity, in the room, too, trying to sort out with the bishops what should be done. Well, I guess you can already assume that the bishop is open to what needs to be said, you know, in a situation like that, maybe. But what I think is missing is righteous anger. (laughs) You know that, um, you know, Your Excellency, I have every respect for your office, but I have to tell you that if you were working in the corporate world, you would have been fired years ago. <laughs> you know, And so how can we possibly proclaim the gospel of Christ when we can't even meet the criteria that are established for the secular world? Harassment and abuse of any kind is, is fundamentally against the gospel. So um, I think both fathers and mothers need to be feel free, even if they say it inelegantly, um, to to say to their 
um, ordinaries and others that we will not put up with this. You have to fix it. Let us help you. Let us work together to establish how that how to go about that. I asked Francesco Cesareo what he would say to a regular Catholic in the pews about the influence he or she could have. I think that um, they should assume their rightful, responsible role for the church. Uh, And by that I mean that they should become as actively engaged in this issue on their local level, that they should not be um, dissuaded from um, expressing their views and their thoughts in in a respectful way, Uh, It doesn't help anybody to be confrontational because that just shuts the dialogue. Uh, But to really have the bishops understand the impact this has had on the laity and on, on on the faithful, on very committed Catholics, uh, committed faithful, and it's going to have a ripple effect for the next two or three generations. And so I think the laity on the local level have to really press what needs to be done and to highlight the areas, uh, the gap areas, if you will, so that those gap areas can be closed. Become, if possible, become a member of your your diocesan review board. Uh, Speak to your pastor, speak to your bishop, let them know how you feel and let them know that you are willing to help them that you are willing to take your responsibility as a member of this church to navigate with them this issue, this crisis, in a way that will allow for meaningful change in the church going forward. One thing the laity were asked to do in the wake of the summer of shame was pray. I had a hard time with that. I brought this up with Reyes. When the bishops responded to the revelations of 2018, there were calls for penance and prayer, and Pope Francis wanted everyone to say the rosary. Um, Those calls didn't seem to be, they seemed to ring hollow. There was a sense, you know, okay, don't, we got this handled, just go pray and we'll handle this. Is is there a way to appeal to the importance of the spiritual aspect of this that is going to be more authentic or that is going to reach people more effectively? I think that reaction was completely understandable because it um, people wanted action and action was appropriate given the degree of the revelations. So I don't want to discount uh, this sense of, come on, but what are you going to do about it? I think that's a fair question. And I think the urgency of the moment, and I think it was actually critical that lay voices were persistent in asking for response. I mean, we're talking about absolutely horrific activity, and we're talking about lives that are massively damaged with living victims. And so the urgency we're with, I I totally support that and understand it. So how in the midst of that, does the church say what it must essentially say? And that's all of us saying it, by the way, the whole 
do they say, but this starts with focusing our eyes on Christ. It starts, the real potency is in prayer. How do we say that authentically? Um, because we do believe this is a spiritual reality, right? This is spiritual warfare as well. There's no way you can read these kinds of events and not see, frankly, something demonic in them. And so spiritual warfare is something we all engage in. Prayer is not a nice thing you do on Sundays. Prayer is the fundamental way we engage in the deepest spiritual realities and join with Christ and Our Lady and the saints and the angels in combating a great evil, which is what this, this is. It's a great evil. When the U.S. bishops wanted to respond quickly with bureaucratic solutions in 2018, the Pope told them to wait. He asked them to go on a retreat together, to pray. Just as the bishops were saying to the laity, please pray, the Pope was saying to the bishops, please pray. When the bishops went on retreat in February 2019, Pope Francis wrote to them, quote, we know that given the seriousness of the situation, no response or approach seems adequate. Nonetheless, we as pastors must have the ability and above all the wisdom to speak a word born of heartfelt, prayerful, and collective listening to the Word of God and to the pain of our people. Pope Francis reminded the U.S. bishops that prayer comes before action. While the clergy consider what to do about addressing past wrongs and avoiding future scandals, it is the laity who face their family, friends, and coworkers, and answer the question, why do you stay in the church? The whole story of the church is not sexual abuse. It needs to hold a prominent place because of the degree of evil it is. But that's not the whole story of the church any more than Judas was the whole story of the church or the divisions in Corinth were the whole story of the church during Paul's time. That's just not... So part of what you say to laity is press where you can on these issues, keep, keep people accountable where you can, but go do your mission. Go do your mission. Is your mission caring for those in need? Is your mission sharing the gospel? Is your mission uh, working with young people or helping or education? What is, your, what is the Lord's mission to you to accomplish? Go after that because God hasn't quit doing those things. And so that's where you see advance. You see amazing things going on. Uh, not to ignore any of this other, but that would be one way to think about this is how do you not get discouraged go do the things god's got you doing and do them well and watch what fruit he brings from them next time on crisis we'll take a closer look at how the clergy have experienced the abuse crisis how the crisis has changed their relationships with their flocks, with their brother priests, with their bishops, and how it's changed their views of their own ministry. From the Catholic Project at the Catholic University of America, you're listening to Crisis. Our podcast team includes myself, Carnal Zoya, executive producer Stephen White, producer Jeff Gosser, and communications manager and writer Sarah Perla. 
Sound designed by Paul Veitkus. Music courtesy of Jay Tibbetts and APM Music. Our theme song was composed by Gautam Shrikashan. Marketing and distribution provided by Jeff Umbro of The Podglomerate. Cover art by Tom Grillo. And a special thanks to Karen Michelle and all of our guests. For an episode guide or for more information about The Catholic Project, go to thecatholicproject.org. If you've been sexually assaulted, you can receive confidential support 24-7 through the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. If the abuse is related to the Catholic Church, you can also contact your diocese victim assistance coordinator. Contact information for each diocese is available at usccb.org forward slash VAC.